Last week when we took a look at chapter 17 and 18, we saw that the mighty Assyrian Empire had come down and totally conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took the remnant of those tribes away uh, in exile to the Assyrian Empire scattered around various places. Well, the, the Assyrian Empire wasn't satisfied just with conquering the northern kingdom of Israel. A few years later, they came back for another attack against the southern kingdom of Judah, and they conquered every fortified city of Judah, virtually the entire surrounding countryside, everything except the capital city of Jerusalem, which, of course, they had to conquer that if they were truly going to conquer the kingdom of Judah. And so when we left it at the end of chapter 18, uh, siege armies were surrounding the city of Jerusalem, and the Assyrian army, with both its technology and its resources and its people and all the things it had going for it, it looked like there was very little chance that the uh, southern kingdom of Judah had to stand against the mighty Assyrian empire. And we saw that this man, this military leader for the Assyrians, named the Rabshakeh, which is actually a title, not a, not a formal name, but he was uh, trying to threaten and deceive and get the people of Jerusalem to give up the battle before it even started. And uh, this left the leaders of Jerusalem very, very discouraged. And as we saw in the last few verses of chapter 18, these officials of the kingdom of Judah tore their clothes in mourning. They were so horrified at the painful effect that the Rabshakeh's words were having on the people that they ran back to King Hezekiah and laid out the problem before him. And that's where we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. And so it was that when King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy, for the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom the master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Well, I think that uh, Hezekiah actually had an excellent reaction to this terrible time of crisis that had come upon the southern kingdom of Judah. First of all, he tore his clothes, which was an expression of deep and profound mourning. It it was the kind of thing that you would do when you heard that something terrible had happened, especially the death of a close friend. Hezekiah received this report regarding the Rabshakeh very seriously, knowing how dedicated this enemy was to completely conquering Jerusalem. Now, you have to admit, that makes you pretty discouraged when you recognize how dedicated your enemy is against you. And that's exactly the situation that Hezekiah was in. And I have to say, in this, we see that Hezekiah's initial reaction was good. He saw the situation for what it really was. 
You know, oftentimes when we're in some kind of trial or difficulty, we handle it poorly because we never see the situation accurately. Maybe we tend to look at it and think that it's worse than it really is. Or sometimes we think that the situation isn't so bad when really it is very bad. But it seems that Hezekiah saw the situation accurately. Jerusalem's situation was desperate, and Hezekiah knew it. And there was good reason for Hezekiah to be so humble. Let's remember that city after city had fallen to the Assyrian army. And all of the deportees were already finding their way, snaking in these long, vicious, brutal trains of people with the hooks in their jaws and being carried back to the Assyrian empire. It was a very, very difficult situation, very intimidating. So what did he do? Look at it there in verse 1. He went into the house of the Lord. So first, he took it seriously. Second, he went into the house of the Lord. He did not allow his mourning and his grief to spin him into a rejection of the Lord's power and help. He knew that it was a more necessary time than ever to seek the Lord. Now, isn't this funny? How oftentimes we do just the opposite. When things are the worst and we're the most depressed and we feel the most defeated, it's like the last place in the world I want to go is the house of the Lord when really it's the most important place for us to go at that moment. But Hezekiah had it right. You see, Hezekiah understood this for what it was, that the terrible blasphemy, the terrible accusation and threat that the Rabshakeh brought, it wasn't against Hezekiah directly, it was against the God whom he represented. And therefore, he brought it to the house of the Lord. Now, don't think that King Hezekiah went to the holy place itself that was forbidden for everyone except the priest. It simply means that Hezekiah went into the courts of the house of the Lord to seek God in the place which was open to him as a man of Israel. We shouldn't confuse Hezekiah with King Uzziah, who earlier went very unwisely and very impudently into the house of the Lord. Now, look at what he did in verse 2. It says he sent Eliakim, Shebna, and the elders of the priests to Isaiah the prophet. The third thing Hezekiah did was also good. He sought the word of the Lord. You understand this, don't you? That when he's seeking the prophet of the Lord, it's not just because he wants Isaiah's company. He wants to hear the word of the Lord. So, so far we have to say, Hezekiah is off to a great start in responding to this crisis. And I think we have to understand, isn't this the true measure of godliness? The true measure of godliness is not does crisis ever come to my life? Some people would have you think that way. That if you're really godly, you'd never have a crisis. If you're really godly, you wouldn't have these deep trials, these, these Rabshakeh-type situations in your life. But that's not true at all. The real measure of godliness is not whether or not you have a crisis, but how you respond in the midst of it. And here we see that, first of all, Hezekiah took it seriously. Second of all, Hezekiah very... Um, much so, he went into the house of the Lord to determine what was going on. And then third of all, he sought the word of the Lord by seeking the prophet. All right, so now on to verse 3. The children have come to birth, but there's no strength to bring them forth. Isn't that a very vivid expression of speech right there? The idea here is of a woman agonizing in labor and putting in all this effort and all this pain and all this agony. But here, now... At the very end, when the baby should come out, she has no more strength, and both the mother and the child die. It's a picture of total calamity. Isaiah put these words into the mouth of his messengers to express the total disaster of the situation. He's using a proverbial expression to indicate calamity. A woman that's so exhausted by labor, 
so that she can't complete the birth and likely the mother and the child both die. So now in verse 4, he says, It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rab Shekha. Now I like that. Hezekiah didn't say first, I want the Lord to hear my words. He said, I want the Lord to hear the words of my enemy. I want the Lord to hear the words of his blasphemy, of his offense against God. Hezekiah knew that their only hope was that God would take offense at the blasphemies of the Rabshakeh and rise up against him. And so he says there, verse 4, Therefore lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He's just saying, Isaiah, pray for us. Our nation is devastated by this Assyrian invasion, and Jerusalem alone is left standing. Pray for the remnant that is left. So what do you think the answer is from Isaiah the prophet? Look at verses 6 and 7. And Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Well, thus says the Lord. Now again, Isaiah the prophet was well aware that he was speaking at that moment as a prophet of the Lord. Without hesitation, he spoke as if he was speaking for the Lord God of heaven. You can be sure that Isaiah did not take this lightly. The fate of the nation and the entire credibility that he had as a prophet rode on what he said here. And you have to say, Isaiah speaking for the Lord was about to make a very bold prediction his prophecy would be entirely provable. Look, you would know whether or not this happened or whether or not it did not happen. Isaiah would be known as a true prophet or a short prophet. You know, this was not one of these, you know, psychic hotlines. You know, I see a tall, dark stranger in your future, kind of vague, this and that and the other thing that, that could mean anything in any situation. No, instead, it was a very plain, straightforward word that said, this is what's going to happen. He's going to have a spirit sent upon him. He's going to hear a rumor. He's going to return to his own land without conquering Jerusalem. And he's going to die by the sword in his own land. And so, the proper response to that, again, is in verse 6, Therefore, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. I wonder if this was not a gentle rebuke in these words from the prophet uh, on behalf of the Lord against Hezekiah. Hezekiah, it's good for you to seek me so passionately, but the words of the Rabshakeh are only words. Don't be afraid of him. I I like what he said, do not be afraid of the words which you have heard. He didn't say, don't be afraid of the swords, don't be afraid of the army, don't be afraid of the, of the siege against you. Don't be afraid of the words. But really now, what has the Rabshakeh done against you so far? Words. And you're, you're ready to give up the fight because of these words. Well, don't be afraid of the words which you have heard. Instead, verse 6, recognize where these words came from, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Now, If Hezekiah had spiritual discernment, when he heard that message coming through the messengers that came from the prophet Isaiah, a big smile came upon his face because he says, oh, oh, now God recognizes that the Rabshakeh was speaking against him. Those were very cheering words to Hezekiah. But before he had said in verse 4, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh to reproach the living God. Now... The Lord spoke through the prophet Isaiah, saying that he had indeed heard those words. It was evident that God took this offense personally. 
And so what was the promise? Again, verse 7, I'll send a spirit upon him, he'll hear a rumor, return to his own land, and he'll fall by the sword in his own land. God assured Hezekiah that he would indeed deal with the Rabshakeh. God had heard his blasphemy, he would bring judgment against him. Now, I, I want you to notice this. In this initial word from the prophet Isaiah, actually from the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, to Hezekiah, there is no mention of Jerusalem's deliverance. There's no mention of the defeat of the Assyrian army. It's almost as if God's saying, I'm taking this personal. This is now between me and the Rabshakeh. I'm going to take care of him. So now, what happens? Verse 8. Then the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, for he had heard that he had departed from Lachish. And the king heard concerning Turkah, the king of Ethiopia, look, he's come out to make war with you. So again, he again sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah, saying, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Look! You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them. Shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed? Gozan and Haran and Rezpeh and the people of Eden who were in Telassar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, and the king of Servaham, Hena and Iva? You see, all of these different things that the, the, the Rabshakeh brought up to sort of bring the rebuke back to Hezekiah, and to the people of Judah. Now again, when it says that the Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria warring against Libna, in verse 8, it must have seemed to Hezekiah like the fulfillment of the Lord's promise through the prophet Isaiah. In other words, the Rabshakeh left Jerusalem, and Hezekiah said, yes, now he's going to go back to his own land and be killed, just like the Lord promised. Good riddance, thank you, Lord. But then, look at what happened while he was away. While the Rabshakeh was away, the Assyrians learned that Egyptian troops, who, by the way, were fighting under an Ethiopian king mentioned here, were advancing from the south. This was the Egyptian invasion that the Assyrians feared and in which many of Judah hoped for. And so Isaiah prophesied, Again, you'd have to go to Isaiah chapter 20 and Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah prophesied that this Egyptian invasion would come to nothing. And so, when the Rabshakeh comes back, he says, listen, or excuse me, not when he was back, when he was away fighting the Ethiopians and the Egyptians to the south, he calls out a long distance to, to Jerusalem and says, don't let your God in whom you trust deceive you. The Rabshakeh was not in Jerusalem, but it didn't stop him from trying to build fear and discouragement, and despair in Hezekiah. So he sent a letter to the king of Judah to attack him from a distance. Hey, look, just because I'm away from Jerusalem, don't think I'm not going to come back here and conquer you at the first chance I have. All of the gods of the nations have fallen before me, and now you're going to fall also. And can you imagine Hezekiah getting this letter? He's shaking in his hands. I thought it was fixed. He left. I thought it was all fixed. Now he says he's going to come back. Now he says he's going to defeat me. Oh, Lord, where was this promise that you gave through the prophet Isaiah? Look at verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now, isn't that beautiful? Hezekiah did exactly what any child of God should do with such a letter. 
He took it to the house of the Lord, again, to the outer courts, not to the holy place. And he spread it out before the Lord. In this, Hezekiah very boldly and effectively fulfilled the later command of 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares upon him because he cares for you. I can just see Hezekiah coming up, tears streaming down his face, his hands shaking. Lord, did you read this? I thought you promised he wasn't going to come back and bother us. He went away and I thought it was fulfilled. But Lord, just take a look at this. He's like a child bringing his broken toy to his father for repair. Oh, Lord, fix this, please. I don't know what to do about this problem. Now, it's funny, you know. If you've been in ministry or some kind of service for any kind of while, you get nasty letters from time to time. And, you know, sometimes you just got to take those letters and spread them out before the Lord. I'll tell you one of the reasons why you've got to spread out those nasty letters before the Lord is sometimes there's some truth in them that you need to listen to. And so you do that. You, you, you don't just throw it away. You don't just ignore it. But neither do you automatically just believe everything in it. What do you do? You spread out the letter before the Lord. Oh, Lord, speak to me. What, where's the wheat and where is the chaff in this letter? Speak to me through it. But listen, you get nasty letters from time to time. I heard a great story about an old preacher who received a letter. It it, it had no uh, signature on it. It didn't indicate who sent it. It had no return address on the envelope. And and he opened up the letter, and on the piece of paper in front of him, it just had one word written real big. It said, fool. And there it was, just right there, fool. And so he took it to the pulpit the next Sunday, and he said, you know, I received a very unusual letter this week. Never before have I received a letter where the writer signed his name but forgot to write anything else in the letter. Well, that's not exactly what Hezekiah did with this letter. But you get the point here. He just spread it out before the Lord. Now pick it up here in verse 15 where it said, Then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he had sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their land and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the works of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they destroyed them. Now therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. I want to spend a little time examining this prayer because I have to regard this as one of the more wonderful prayers in the Bible. Notice how he starts off. He starts off by calling God, God of Israel. You know, this title for God reminded Hezekiah, and he was hoping to remind the Lord of it too. Lord, you're the covenant God of Israel. We're your problem. We belong to you. So come through. You're the God of Israel. And then he says in verse 15, The one who dwells between the cherubim. Here, Hezekiah saw the great majesty of God, the the enthroned God with all the glory of heaven around him and the cherubim surrounding his throne. Surely this majestic God would never allow the Rabshakeh's blasphemies to go unpunished. 
Listen, you're a judge, you're a lawgiver, you're a king. You're bound by the most solemn obligation, Lord, to defend your people. And then he goes on in verse 15. You are God, you alone. Now God, God, that is a simple title for the Lord, but it's perhaps the most powerful. You are God, you alone. Listen, if he's God, then what can he not do? If he's God, then what's beyond his control? Hezekiah realized the most fundamental fact of theology. Do do you want the first and most essential lesson in theology? There is a God in heaven and you are not him. God is God and the Rabshakeh and the Assyrians are not God. And then in verse 15 he says, You have made heaven and earth. Lord, you created it all. You have power over it all. You have the right over it all. You can almost feel Hezekiah's faith rising as he praises, as he prays this prayer. And then in verse 16, he says, Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Now listen, he didn't think that the Lord had suddenly turned blind or deaf. It's a poetic way of asking God to act upon what he has seen and heard, assuming that if God has seen such things, he will certainly act. And so he says, hear the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to reproach the living God. He says that in verse 16. In his prayer, King Hezekiah drew the contrast between the living God of Israel and the false gods of the nations. And so you see this prayer full of confidence, full of faith, full of bold asking before God. And now we're going to see the Lord speak to this situation again. Verse 20. Then Isaiah, the son of Amoz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you've prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I've heard. This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn, and the daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head behind your back. Now, I want you to notice first what it says there in verse 20. Because you have prayed to me. Now the rest of this chapter is filled with a glorious answer to prayer. But because of this, we have to say that it only happened because Hezekiah prayed. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Um, Wasn't this the ordained plan of God, you know, in all of his predestined working out will, and he knew this from the beginning of time, and, you know, wasn't this his his preordained plan? Yes, absolutely. Well, but, but what if Hezekiah wouldn't have prayed? Then it would have happened anyway, right? Because God, no. Well, but then how does... I don't know how to explain it. All I'm telling you is it says right there in verse 20, you can read it for yourself, because you have prayed to me. What if Hezekiah would not have prayed? Then we are left with nothing else to think that no answer would have come and Jerusalem would have been conquered. I want you to think about that for a moment. The, 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 Jerusalem stands or falls based on the prayer of this one man. What I want you to see is that Hezekiah's prayer really mattered. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think that prayer is just sort of this pious devotional activity, you know, just sort of exercising in faith, you know, and it is all of those things. But make no mistake about it, prayer moves the hand of the mighty God in heaven. And we should ask ourselves, how many blessings, how many victories, how many souls saved for Jesus lie unclaimed in heaven until the Lord will say, because you have prayed to me. 
What was the answer to the question here? What was the answer that he sought for? Verse 21, the virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. You see, the idea here is that the Assyrians had come to ravish, to, well, to rape the daughter of Zion, the city of Jerusalem. But God says, no, 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 I'm not going to allow it. I'm not going to allow it. She's going to laugh. She's going to shake her head at you and throw her hair and laugh you off. And so here it is. This is the promise that God made. Verse 22. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes on high? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your messengers you reproached the Lord and said, By the multitude of my chariots I've come up to the height of the mountains, to the limits of Lebanon. I will cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypress trees. I will enter the extremity of its borders to its fruitful forest. I have dug and drunk strange water, and with the soles of my feet I have dried up all the brooks of defense. Did you not hear long ago how I made it, from ancient times that I formed it? Now I have brought it to pass, that you should be for crushing fortified cities into heaps of ruins. Therefore the inhabitants had little power. They were dismayed and confounded. There was the grass of the field before this, and the green herb as the grass on the housetops, and the grain blighted before it's grown. But I know your dwelling place. You're going out and you're coming in and your rage against me because your rage against me and because of your tumult have come up to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I'll turn you back by the way you came. Now, verses 20 and 21 were God's sweet, encouraging words to King Hezekiah and the city of Jerusalem. Verses 22 through 28 was God, well, just laying it out to the Assyrians and the Rabshakeh saying, you know what? You know why you've been successful in all those battles? It's because I was with you and you didn't even know it. But I'm tired of your arrogance. I'm tired of your blasphemies and I know where you live. Now I'm going to do to you what other people, what you've been doing to other people. I'm going to put the hook in your nose. I'm going to put the bridle in your mouth and I'm going to turn you where I want to turn you. It's really a fascinating passage. Verse 22, God asked him, Whom you've reproached and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice? You see, the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, simply said to the Rabshakeh, Do you know who you're dealing with? And by the way, the Rabshakeh obviously did not know. But I have to wonder. I wonder if this prophecy ever reached the ears of the Rabshakeh. I mean, after all, Isaiah the prophet didn't exactly have a, a free entry pass into the courts of the Rabshakeh. But perhaps before his terrible end, God found a way to get this prophecy to him. Or perhaps God had it for him as a very special message sent to a blasphemer who was in hell. I don't know. But at the very least, even if the Rabshakeh never heard this prophecy, it was encouraging to Hezekiah and to all of Judah, even if they never heard it. Listen, the point there is that sometimes God speaks to the enemy more for the sake of his people than for the sake of the enemy himself. So in any way, he describes how with great pride the Assyrians rose to power, but they didn't see it that all the time it was the Lord that allowed them to win such victories because God was using them as the instrument of his judgment. Can you see the Assyrians there? Can you see the Assyrians bragging and boasting, well, you know, we conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And God says, you know why you did it? Because I wanted them judged. 
That's right. You were just a tool in my hand. And now you're becoming an uncooperative tool in my hand. So it says there in verse 27, I know your dwelling place and you're coming out and going in. I know how to find you. I've got your number, kingdom of Assyria. And because you went too far in blaspheming me, God said, the one who made all your success possible, I'm going to put my hook in your nose and I'll turn you back by the way which you came. Again, and as we repeat, this was the same kind of punishment that the Assyrians inflicted upon those people whom they conquered. Verse 29. This shall be a sign to you. Now he's back to encouraging Judah again. This shall be a sign to you. You shall eat this year such as grows of itself, and the second year which springs from the same. Also in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. And the remnant who have escaped from the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go out a remnant. And those who escape from Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, the invasion of the Assyrian army prevented normal agriculture in the year 702 B.C. But when the threat lifted in 701, they would find that enough had grown all on its own to preserve life. And then in the year 700, there would still be enough, although it was just sort of growth here and there, blessed by the Lord. God was promising them that even though it looks like you have faced an agricultural disaster because of this invasion of the Assyrians, I'm going to take care of you. And then he says in verse 31, For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant. As much as the Assyrians wanted to crush Jerusalem and Judah, they will not be able to. God will preserve his remnant. Verse 32, Thus, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with a shield, nor build a siege mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, says the Lord. For I will defend this city, to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Here God very plainly and clearly drew a line. Hey, Rabshakeh, you're not coming into this city. I know the Assyrian war machine was poised to lay siege against Jerusalem and ultimately crush them, but they won't. The king of Assyria will not come into the city of Jerusalem because God promised to defend it. You know, it's hard for us as modern people to understand the ancient horror of the siege when a city was surrounded by a hostile army and trapped into a slow and suffering salvation. King Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem lived under this constant shadow of this threat. But God's promise to them through Isaiah assured them that even though Sennacherib and the Assyrian army would not only fail to capture the city, but they wouldn't even shoot an arrow or build a siege mound against Jerusalem. God promised here that they would not even begin a siege. Now listen, it would have been a wonderful promise if God said, oh, well, listen, they're going to lay siege against Jerusalem. It'll be horrible and terrible. And after a three-year siege, they'll give up and go home. But no, God said, no, they're not even going to begin the siege. Why? Verse 34, for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. God explained by this phrase why he promised to defend Jerusalem. He would defend it because of the sake of his own glory. You know, sometimes we think that it's our job to defend the glory of God. But you know, it really isn't the case. God is more than able to defend his own glory. So, verse 35. 
Buckle your seatbelt for this one. Look at it. Verse 35. And it came to pass on a certain night that the angel of the Lord went out and killed in the camp of the Assyrians 185,000. And when people arose early in the morning, there were the corpses all dead. Pretty fast, isn't it? Simply and powerfully, God destroyed this mighty army in one night. 185,000 died at the hand of the mighty angel of the Lord. Against all odds, against every expectation, except the expectation of faith, the Assyrian army was turned back without having even shot an arrow into Jerusalem. The unstoppable was stopped, and the undefeated was defeated. By the way, the prophet Hosea made the same prediction in Hosea 1.7. He says, I will have mercy on the house of Judah and save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, nor by horses or horsemen. By the way, Herodotus, the Greek historian, recorded that in one night, Sennacherib's army camp was infested with mice or rats that destroyed all the arrows and the shield straps of the soldiers. And it could be that this is somewhat of a confused version that Herodotus, the Greek historian, has that really points to maybe God using a great plague to wipe out this army in one night. I don't know how exactly God did it. He sent an angel of the Lord to do the dirty work. But when everybody woke up, all those corpses was dead. were dead, of course. This was not difficult for God to do. Listen, in a manner of speaking, it was far harder for the Lord to get the hearts and minds of his people into the right place than it was for him to send an angel to kill 185,000. Some people think that, you know, maybe the angel sent a plague or this or that. We really don't know. But I'm fascinated. God had to send one angel to do this. You know what? There's a lot of angels in heaven. And this was one night's work for one angel. So what happened? Verse 36. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went away and returned home and remained at Nineveh. Now it came to pass as he was worshiping in the temple of Nishrach, his god, that his sons Adremelech and Sherazar struck him down with a sword and they escaped into the land of Erat. Then Ershadon, his son, reigned in his place. Well, first in verse 36, it says that he departed and went away. And isn't that exactly what God said would happen? But he left still full of pride. After this retreat from Judah, Sennacherib commissioned a record which is preserved in the spectacular Annals of Sennacherib, which is seen in the British Museum. It shows how full of pride Sennacherib's heart still was, even if he could not claim that he conquered Jerusalem. One of the most wonderful museums you can ever go to in the world is the British Museum in London. And you'll find many very exciting biblical artifacts there because the British held sway over that part of the world for a good many years. And they had good archaeologists who know how to find the good things and bring them back to the British Museum in London. Well, anyway, when you find this remarkable um, uh, record that Sennacherib left, it shows that, that uh, Sennacherib brags about all of his victories, all this and all that. I conquered here, I conquered there. You know what he doesn't say, though? He doesn't say that he conquered Jerusalem. He says, and I received tribute money from Jerusalem. And I conquered here, and I conquered there, and I conquered this. <laughs> But you see, what he doesn't say really adds to the validity of the biblical record. 
And then we find in verse 7, 37, I should say, that it came to pass that, uh, well, his sons assassinated him. Now, you should know that between 2 Kings 19.36 and 2 Kings 19.37, 20 years passed. And perhaps Sennacherib thought that he had escaped the judgment of God, but he didn't. He met the bitter end of death at the end of swords that were held by his own two sons. There's an old Jewish legend, and it's nothing more than a legend. Don't take this seriously. I'm just passing on an old rabbinical legend. It says how it was that Sennacherib's sons came to kill him. It's said that Sennacherib was troubled at how God seemed to bless the Jews so much, and so he tried to find out why. Why does God bless these Jewish people so much? Somebody told him that it was because Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to sacrifice his own son to the Lord. Sennacherib thought, I'll become even more favored by God. I'll kill both of my sons in sacrifice to the Lord. But his sons became aware of the plot, and they killed dad before dad could kill them. Again, don't take that seriously. It's just a rabbinical legend, but it gives us a transition between chapter 19 and chapter 20, where we consider more about the reign of Hezekiah. Okay, so chapter 20, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, went to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now, I have to say, chronologically, it seems that the events here in the beginning part of chapter 20 took place before the Assyrian invasion. And we're going to see why, because in a short while, the Assyrian invasion will be mentioned in a future sense. So for whatever reason, the divine historian put this in the record a little bit out of the chronological order, probably because he wanted to present that exciting story of the Assyrian invasion right after the Assyrian successes against the northern kingdom of Israel. Anyway, Hezekiah was sick and near death. We're not told how he became sick. It may have been through something that was obvious to everybody, or it may have been through something only known to God. However, Hezekiah became sick. Certainly, the Lord allowed it. And the prophet Isaiah came to him and he said, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Now let me ask you, if you heard that message from God, would that be a kindness to you or would it be a curse? I have to say, I think it's a kindness. God was remarkably kind to Hezekiah, telling him that death was near. You know, not everybody gets to hear that that death is near and you've got time to put your house in order. Now, we learned by comparing a few passages together that Hezekiah was 39 years old when he learned that he would die. So what did Hezekiah do? Look at verse 2. Then he returned his face toward the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Remember now, O Lord, I pray, how I have walked before you in truth and with a loyal heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now, I like how it says that he turned his face towards the wall. It shows how serious he was in prayer. He directed his prayer in privacy to God. He didn't want anybody to see him, not even Isaiah the prophet. And so he says there in verse 3, Remember now, O Lord, what a good boy I am and how righteous I am. Doesn't this prayer sound a little strange in your ears? To our ears, Hezekiah's prayer might sound almost ungodly. In this prayer... 
His focus is on self-justification and his own merits. It's pretty much as if Hezekiah prayed, Lord, I've been such a good boy and you're not being fair to me. Remember what a good boy I am and rescue me. But I want you to understand something. Under the old covenant, this was a valid principle by which somebody could approach God. Passages like Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 show that under the old covenant, blessing and cursing was sent by God on the basis of obedience or disobedience. But under the new covenant, we are blessed on the principle of faith in Jesus Christ. Hezekiah's principle of prayer is not fitting for the Christian today. Nobody should be out teaching seminars on the prayer of Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20. But we pray today in the name of Jesus, not in the name of who we are or what we have done. And at the end of verse 3, it tells us that Hezekiah wept bitterly. And you say, Hezekiah, what's wrong for you? Don't you believe in heaven? Don't you want to go be with the Lord? Again, this reflects something that's different between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Hezekiah lived under the Old Covenant, and under the Old Covenant, we can say that there was not a confident assurance of the glory in life beyond. When you take a look at the life beyond and resurrection in the Old Covenant, especially up to the time of Hezekiah, it's cloudy. You know, David in the Psalms says things like, can I praise you from the grave? And it's like he's really asking the question, can I? I don't know what's beyond in the world after death. Maybe it's there, maybe it's there. I do know that I can praise you now, Lord, so keep my life now. Listen to this passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. It tells us that life and immortality have come to light through Jesus Christ. Life and immortality. In other words, we know a lot more about eternity under the new covenant than they did under the old covenant. Well, I'm not trying to cover for Hezekiah. I think his attitude was wrong. I think he should have had more confidence in this because there certainly were glimmers of that hope. He could have read Job where he says, I know that my Redeemer lives and I know that I will stand with him on the last day. He could have known and taken seriously such promises as that. But again... I'm just trying to point out that the understanding of, this, of the world beyond this one was a lot more uncertain in the, the Old Covenant than it was in the New. So, verse 4, Isaiah is going to bring an answer to Hezekiah's prayer. And it happened, before Isaiah had gone out into the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I've heard your prayer, I've seen your tears. Surely I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your days fifteen years. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria. I will defend this city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Then Isaiah said, Take a lump of figs. And so they took and laid it on the boil, and he recovered. Did you see the mention of the Assyrian invasion? Right. So this is how we know it took place chronologically before the invasion. But the bottom line is right there in verse 6 where God promised Hezekiah, I'll add to your days 15 years. In response to Hezekiah's prayer, God granted him 15 years more. Now I've got to say, we really have to say Hezekiah was one of the more successful men of prayer in the Bible. 
His prayer saved Jerusalem. His prayer added 15 years to his life. I don't know exactly what it was in Hezekiah that made him such a mighty man of prayer, but he's worthy of our imitation. Now, um, Hezekiah here received a great gift from God. And the great gift from God was knowing that you had 15 years left, but only 15 years. What, what would it be like for you if God came to you tonight and he said, you know what? You've got 15 years left starting now. Now, at first you wouldn't think a whole lot about it, right? 15 years seems a long way away. But right about 10 years from now, you'd be thinking about it all the time. As a matter of fact, some commentators I read said that God almost gave this to Hezekiah as a judgment. Can you imagine living those last five years? What a shadow, what a cloud over your life. Anyway, I just think it's more complicated than we immediately think. To be told by God, you have 15 years left to live. But anyway, in verse 5, God told him, I've heard your prayer. Again, if he prays, it happens. If he doesn't pray, it doesn't happen. You could say that God gave two gifts to Hezekiah. First, he gave him the gift of an extended life. Second, he gave him the gift of knowing that it would be 15 years. But in verse 6, he promised, I'll defend the city for my own sake. And then in verse 7, he says, take that lump of figs. Apparently, God used a medicinal treatment to bring the healing. It reminds us that God can and often does bring healing through medicinal treatments. And apart from an unusual direction from God, medical treatment should never be rejected in the name of faith. So now, uh, verse 8. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Then Isaiah said, This is the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do the thing which he has spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go backward 10 degrees? And Hezekiah answered, It's an easy thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go backward 10 degrees. So Isaiah the prophet cried out to the Lord, and he brought the shadow ten degrees backward, by which it had gone down on the sundial of Ahaz. Well, Hezekiah wanted a sign. And what would be the sign that he should go up to the house of the Lord, that he would be healed, that he would have 15 more years? And God said, I'll give you a sign. I'll show you, certainly, by the movement of the shadow on the sundial. Now, it's one thing for the sundial shadow to go forward in its normal manner, right? It's another thing for the shadow on the sundial to move backward. God promised to do something completely miraculous in the confirming sign. He promised to make the shadow on the sundial move backward instead of forward. I've got to say, this was a wonderfully appropriate sign for Hezekiah. By bringing the shadow of the sundial backwards, it gave more time in a day which is exactly what he gave Hezekiah, right? More time in his life. And it was a miracle. And listen, it's wonderful to hear that the, the commentators tried to figure out how God did this miracle. Some people say that God took the earth and turned it back. Other people say God did funny things with refraction and mirrors and casting special shadows. Other people say that angels did funny things with casting shadows or hand puppets, or I don't know what else he would say. I like what one commentator said. He said, you know what, if we consider the sundial to be God's clock, he goes, it's a pretty poor clockmaker who can't set his own clock. God could do whatever he wanted to do with the shadow. So, 
no matter how this miracle happened, if we were to turn to 2 Chronicles 32, we would find that Hezekiah did not respond rightly to this gift of healing. Let me read to you 2 Chronicles chapter 32, verses 24 through 26. In those days, Hezekiah was sick and near death, and he prayed to the Lord. And he spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah did not repay according to the favor shown him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, wrath was looming over him and over Judah and Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come upon them in the days of Hezekiah. Well, this gives a different flavor to the Assyrian invasion, doesn't it? There's a sense in which God brought it upon Jerusalem and upon the kingdom of Hezekiah as a judgment until Hezekiah truly humbled himself. Now, apparently, after the miraculous recovery of Hezekiah, after the Assyrian invasion is put back, at some time after all those things are resolved, look at what happens beginning now at verse 12. At that time, Berodach Baladan the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them. And he showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the, price, the spices and precious ointments, and all his armory, and all was, that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Now, can we get back to the geopolitical situation here? the big world powers here, the Assyrian Empire, right? Then you have the fading Egyptian Empire, which is still capable of showing strength now and then. But who's the new kid on the block? The Babylonian Empire is rising in strength. The Babylonian Empire is becoming mightier and mightier. And then who comes and visits King Hezekiah one day, but some special envoys from the up-and-coming kingdom in the region, and that's the Babylonians. So, the king of Babylon sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. A kind gesture from the king of Babylon, showing concern to Hezekiah as fellow royalty. Yes, Hezekiah, we know how hard it is for us kings these days. I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. Here's a gift for you. By the way, the Babylonians worshipped the sun, and they may have heard about the miracle of the moving shadow and thought that even the sun was honoring King Hezekiah. So letters and a gift came to King Hezekiah and came through the man Barodak Baladin. By the way, this shows the presence of this man that this was more than a courtesy call. You know what this actually was? This was an attempt to bring the kingdom of Judah on the side of the Babylonians in an alliance against the Assyrians. This was really a political visit. And it says right there that Hezekiah was attentive to them. You can just imagine how flattering this was for King Hezekiah. Now look, let's face it. Israel, Judah, you know, the kingdoms of the people of God in that area of the world, they've always been small kingdoms. They've never really been much of superpowers. You could argue that during the days of David and Solomon, these were glorious, kind of almost superpowers in their region. 
never like a Babylon or an Assyria or Egypt, but they at least had some standing in those days. In these days, they were little kingdoms. And you know, the little kingdoms can get really flattered when the Babylonian envoys come. Well, Judah was a lowly nation with a little power, and Babylon was a junior superpower. So to receive this kind of notice and recognition from the king of Babylon must have really made Hezekiah feel that he was important. So what did he do? Verse 13, he showed them the house of his treasures. Can't you just see it in your mind? Can't you just imagine Hezekiah wanting to please these envoys from Babylon and wanting to show them that they really did have a good reason to be impressed with him and his kingdom? So he did everything that he could to impress them. And he showed them the very best riches of his royal household. And he showed them everything. After all, it says there, there was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that King Hezekiah did not show them. Now, Let me sort of tell you what's going to happen in the coming verses. Isaiah is going to rebuke Hezekiah for this. And as the coming rebuke from Isaiah will demonstrate, this was nothing but proud foolishness on Hezekiah's part. He was in the dangerous place of wanting to please and impress man, especially ungodly men. You know, this was not spiritual pride. King Uzziah, his great-grandfather, he had spiritual pride. He's the one who marched into the temple and said, I want to be like a priest. That's spiritual pride. No, this was worldly pride, the pride of life. He wanted to show around the Babylonians and say, this is my armor, my treasures, my house, my dominion. Hezekiah faced and failed under a temptation common to many people, especially those in ministry, the temptation of success. Listen, many men who stand strong against the temptations of failure and weakness fail under the temptations of success and strength. I want you to think about the extent of Hezekiah's strength. Think of how strong he was. He was godly. He was victorious. He was healed. He had experienced a miracle. He had been promised a long life. He had a connection to a great prophet. He had seen a remarkable sign with his own eyes. He was wealthy. He was famous. He was praised and honored, and he was even honored by God. That's a lot of success, isn't it? Nevertheless, he sinned greatly after this great gift of 15 more years and the deliverance of Jerusalem. You might say that Hezekiah sinned in at least five ways. First, he was proud. He was proud of the honors that the Babylonians brought to him. Second, he was ungrateful in that he took the honor to himself that really belonged to God. Third, he abused the gifts that God gave him where he took the gifts and the favors to his own honor. Fourth, he had a carnal confidence in that he trusted in the alignment that he made with the king of Babylon. And then fifth, he made the sin of missing an opportunity in that he had a great opportunity to testify to the Babylonian ambassadors about the greatness of God and the Lord's blessing on Judah. Instead, he glorified himself. Listen, he shouldn't have given him the tour through the treasury room, the tour through the king's riches, the tour through the crown jewels of Judah, the tour of the dominion. He shouldn't have done that. Instead, why didn't he take the ambassadors to God's house? Why didn't he show them 
every aspect of the house of the Lord that spoke of the Messiah. He should have said, this is the brazen altar where we offer our sacrifices. It reminds us of the coming sacrifice of our Messiah. This is the lampstand. It's inside that building. You can't see it. Maybe if they open the door, you can see it from a distance. But it's in there. And it speaks to us about how the Messiah is the light of the world. And inside of there is a table where there's bread set up new every day because we're to have fellowship with our God and go on and on and on and show them all about the spiritual riches of their kingdom. But instead it was, oh, look at the golden shields time. And it proved to be a ruin for Hezekiah. Look at it here, verse 14. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? You know you're in trouble when Isaiah the prophet begins that way with you. So Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house, and there's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. I find it interesting that when Isaiah brought the questions in verse 14, what did these men say and where did they come from? He knew the answers. Then why did he ask the question? You know why. So that Hezekiah would repent. So that Hezekiah would be seized with that moment of horror that comes with the conviction of sin and say, oh my goodness, I should have never done that. Oh, Isaiah, won't you come help me seek the Lord and we'll get this straight and maybe the damage can be undone. Did Hezekiah do that? No, he said, they came to me from a far country. They came to me from Babylon. I showed them everything that we had. There's the flavor that Hezekiah was proud to tell Isaiah this. He's like the small town boy who was awed by the attention of the big city man. Hey, Isaiah, you should have seen how impressed those Babylonians were with everything that I have. You know, they really know now we're something down here in Judah. Hezekiah's pride and inflated ego made him blind. That's why Isaiah said to him, all that's in your house, you know everything that they saw? Those Babylonians are going to come and take it away. Hezekiah, you thought that your display of wealth would impress the Babylonians. All it did was make them hungry to come back and take it. That would be more than a hundred years before Babylon carried away the royal treasures of Judah. But they did come just as Isaiah promised. Verse 18, they shall take away some of your sons, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Worse than taking the material riches of the kings of Judah, the king of Babylon would come and take the sons of the king of Judah. Those were his true riches. You know, one fulfillment of this was the taking of Daniel and his companions into captivity. And that's why some people think that Daniel and his companions in the book of Daniel were actually made eunuchs. Although... It is known that sometimes this word was used in a figurative sense, not for somebody who had been literally castrated, but somebody just in a figurative sense was a devoted servant of the king. Now on to verse 19, and really the last couple verses we're going to consider here tonight. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you've spoken is good. 
For he said, Will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Hezekiah rested with his fathers, then Manasseh his son reigned in his place. When you read verse 19, you probably thought the same thing I thought. When Hezekiah said, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. You know, this was a sad state in the heart of the king of Judah. God announced coming judgment, and all Hezekiah could respond with was relief that it would not happen in his lifetime. Oh, oh, good. You mean it's not going to happen to me directly? Oh, good. Just my children and grandchildren. Whew, they're going to get it, not me. You see, in this, Hezekiah showed himself to be almost the exact opposite of a true others-centered person. He was almost totally self-centered. All he seemed to care about was his personal comfort and success. Verse 20 speaks of another accomplishment of Hezekiah, this pool and a tunnel. And by the way, you go to Jerusalem today and you can take a tour through Hezekiah's tunnel, which I might say was a remarkable engineering achievement. It was found in the year 1880 and it was cut for 643 meters to cover a direct distance of 332 meters. In other words, they had to cut it, you know, different directions until the two guys finally met in the middle and what it did was it enabled them to reach water during a time of siege. This tunnel that was cut through solid rock. By the way, there's an interesting inscription written in the tunnel. Uh, they're carved into the stone in the original Hebrew. And it says that when the tunnel was driven through, while the quarrymen were, were swinging their axes, that each man towards the other, and there were still three cubits left, and they could hear each other, and then finally they broke through, and made it through, and they met there in the middle. It's a remarkable engineering achievement mentioned in the Bible. You can see it in Jerusalem, and I have to say, I have visited Jerusalem, I think, probably five or six times now. I've never been in Hezekiah's tunnel. I've seen the pictures, and I wish I could go. That's because most of the time when I've went, it's been during the rainy season, and it's, the water level's too high, and they don't want people to go in there. But if you go when it's a little bit more dry, they're happy to let you in there. And, you know, you, I, I understand, though, that if you're a little bit claustrophobic, you don't want to go in there. Because it's tight. It's tight. I haven't been in there, but this is what I hear about it. Now, verse 21. So Hezekiah rested with his fathers. You know, there's no doubt that King Hezekiah started out as a godly king. Perhaps one of the most godly kings that Judah ever had. And overall, his reign was one of outstanding godliness. If you take his reign as a whole, you say, yes, way to go, Hezekiah. Yet we have to say, his beginning was much better than his end. He did not finish well. Think about this. God gave Hezekiah the gift of 15 more years. How well did Hezekiah use that gift? I don't think those 15 years made him a better man or more godly man. He seemed to be better at the beginning than at the end. Time or age does not necessarily make us any better. Consider that time does nothing but pass away. We sometimes like to say, time will tell. Time will heal. Time will bring out the potential in me. But time will do nothing of the sort. Time will only come and go. 
It's only how we use that time that matters. Hezekiah did not make good use of the extra time that the Lord gave him. Well, may the Lord convict us to make the most of the time that he gives us. I don't think he's given a word to anybody here that you only have a set number of years left. But we should live as if that were true. Father, that is our prayer here tonight. We are so, so grateful for the new covenant that we live under, Lord, and that we don't have to come before you proclaiming our own goodness for an answer to prayer. Instead, Lord, we trust in the goodness and the merits of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful, Lord, that as great as a king as Hezekiah was, that we have a greater king, Jesus, on our behalf. But Lord, Hezekiah didn't use those last years of time well. Help us to use the time you have given us and redeem the time because the days are evil. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.